So glad that you guys are here with us this morning. If you're new and I haven't had the chance to meet you, I'd love to be able to say hi to you after the service. We are in our series that we've entitled Drifted because I think as we look at society, we look at marriages, we look at our own relationship, I think the tendency is to drift away from the ideal. Drift away from what God designed love to be and from what, it, what is its highest experience of love. So we're going to talk about that this morning. Um, if you're a guest and you just happen to show up on this day, uh, you kind of picked a pretty funny one to show up for, so um, do your best to hang along. I think it'll be, I think it'll be good. I think it'll be challenging. Uh, we're going to look at a book that we've been looking at called Song of Songs, which the Bible is, is kind of like it's the racy, the risque book, um, and I think there's a lot of good stuff in there because the reality is oftentimes life, life is racy and, and risque, and I think what we do do with, with the wisdom from that book is going to shape some pretty powerful moments in our life. So that being said, let's just pray and ask God to teach us this morning. God, you're awesome. I pray that your wisdom would influence us, that we'd walk out of here people who are, um, who are living in line with what you say, and we find the blessings and benefits for that in our life. Um, thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. So one of the things we say a lot around here is that we are a church that loves God and loves people and wants people to fall after Jesus. Love God, love people, want people to follow after Jesus. And when we talk about an issue like uh, sexual morality, those, those two things are very tough to balance. And I think typically we get one or we get the other that gets, ends up getting lost. Like we either stop loving, we, we only love God and we stop loving people. Um, and by default, I, I'm, just for the record, I don't even think that's possible. I think if you look at the scriptures, you look at, look at 1 John, Second uh, John, the way that God lays out his love for, or our love for him is it's built and it's founded on us also loving other people. Where God's going, you can't possibly hate my creation and love me. It just doesn't work like that. I don't think we can love God and not love people at the end of the day. I think that's a false dichotomy. I, I also think, don't think that we can be really truly loving to people and exclude God from it all because I think God, he directs us and he instructs us on the way to be most loving to others. I think he also, his love satisfies us so much that it makes us love other people more. The more we're with God, the more loving we are. So I don't think we can really, we can really say we're going to talk about sexuality um, and we're going to talk about it distinct from the idea of we love God and we love people. So we're going to take our best stab at trying to, to balance those two this morning. So I ask for a bit of grace as we go here. Um, but this is, this is my best stab at it. How do we balance loving God, loving people with the issue of sexual morality? Here's, here's what I would say about this. Um, so we're going to love people regardless of who they are regardless of what they've done or what they think. Like if they're a person, they get to make choices, and we're going to love them regardless of those choices. We're, we're just going to love them. We're going to love people we disagree with. We're going to love people that live differently than us. We're just going to love them, right? Um, I, I was talking, or I actually read a Facebook post from another pastor. His name's Jason Lyberg. He's at Life Church in Helena, Montana. And for some reason this morning at five o'clock in the morning, Helena time, he was up and working on sermon stuff. And I give him more credit because I was still asleep in like Eastern time at the time. Um, but he, he had a statement that he wrote. Um, he said, we don't, that, that people don't have to believe like me to be loved by me. People don't have to believe like me to be loved by me. And I read that, and I was like, that, that's a true, I, I would agree with that. I think that's a very biblical concept. Because in Romans, the scripture says this, it says, while we were yet sinners, God loved us. So God's loving people, even, even though they don't believe the way that he wants them to believe. So, so that if people are people, we're just going to love them right? Um, they're going to be people, and part of that means then that we're going to love them. But if we're going to let people be people, we're also going to let God be God, 
right? So people are going to be people that can make their choices. But God's God, and, and if God decides to set up moral parameters for his, for his world, that's entirely up to him. Like, he can do that. If he owns it all, if he owns everything on this planet, he could just make up stuff that I would think is absolutely ridiculous. And what else, what else do I have to say about it? He's God, I'm not. Like, he could be like, Matt, chicken wings are of the devil. And then be like, I, I don't, I disagree with you. I think they're good. I think they're tasty. And, and at the end of the day, he'd be like, well, you're just a person. And I love you, but you don't see what I see. You didn't design what I designed, so you don't get to lay out house rules. And so you actually, you live this way. Like if today I decided to park my truck in your living room, you'd be like, hey, my house rules say you need to get your truck out here and, and you need to pay for whatever you damaged in the process or I'm going to call the police. If, if I'm like, hey, you know what, I'm going to move in and I'm going to start like just, I, I'm, I'm like, I'm really conscientious of the environment, so I'm going to unplug things around your house to save electricity, like your, your fridge and your freezer, I'm just going to unplug them to save some, some carbon footprint here. You'd be like, hey, house rules, we keep our food cold because it's your house. You get to make up the rules. And, and so what we do is we approach scripture that way where if it's God's house, I, as his creation, don't get to lay out the boundaries for his parameters. He, he gets to set the house rules. And so think about it. Like if God just showed up to you, like you're taking a walk later today, you get some nice weather, you out and you take a walk, and God just visibly shows up in front of you and he says, hey, here's the deal. Like I'm going to love you enough to at an immense cost to myself, at great sacrifice and great pain, I'm going to die so that you can live forever. Also, I have, I have house rules, and I'm going to set up parameters for you. Like, wh what part of us would be like, I don't really like that. Like, that's, that's not cool with me. See, I, I think that there's, there's an issue here, and I think, I think it's fascinating to me where the issue of sexuality is always like the deal breaker when it comes to Christianity. Like, Jesus, you can die for me. That's great. We can have a personal relationship, but you don't get to touch this area of my life. And I would ask the question, like, what does that say about us as humans? Right? And so that's just, like, that's just for you to think about, um, for you to work through. But my, my perspective is if he died for us personally and he loves us, then he gets to set up house rules. But this is where the two kind of marry together. All right? Those humans, those people who follow the house rules should never think they're better because they follow the house rules. Like you're not a better person because you do things the way that God designs the, the house to run. And I, I talk about it like this. Like I've got two boys, right? I've got a six-year-old and a nine-year-old. Uh, one of them is very rule-driven, and he's always going to, like he'll quote me on stuff that happened like seven years ago, and he's only eight years old. Like you said this, and I'm like, I, I don't remember. We're just going to go off a new rule right now, okay? Okay. Um, He's very rule-driven, and by, de by default, he's very much focused on obeying the rules. So let's just say you got two kids. One of them's like, I, all right, I understand the house rules, and, and I get it. I don't like it. I'm going to live here in open rebellion of everything that you say. I don't care if you take things from me. I don't care if, if you're going to punish me. I'm just going to do things my way. And the other child comes along and says, house rules make sense. You live here. You feed me. You determine when we go on vacation, and if we go on vacation, you determine how many presents I get. And, and so, so house rules make sense. You get two children. One of them says, I, I'm gonna, I, I don't really care. I'm going to do things my way. The other says, I think this is the best way. Now, here's the thing. You could argue that one of them is going to live a more fortunate life. 
Because one of them will have an easier go of things. One of them will get to experience less time in, time out. One of them is going to have less natural repercussions for life. Right? But you could not argue this. You could not come along and say, one of them is better. Because I'd say, no, you're lying. I love them the same. It's not better or worse. It's more fortunate or not. And so when we talk about human sexuality, we talk about the choices that we make, our past, we talk about decisions. We cannot talk about the issue of better or not better. The reason we can't, the reason we can't, it's very simple, is because when we enter the conversation of better, we also enter the word cross. And when cross enters the conversation, it eliminates the word better from the conversation at all because the cross puts everybody on the exact same playing field. That every single human has sinned. Every single human was born in this world separated from God. God said, I love you anyway. I'm going to come. I'm going to die on this cross to make up for your wrong as a substitute for your wrong. And then I'm going I'm to make it so that as I raise from the grave, whoever has faith in me has free life forever. Forgiveness of sins. And at that moment, you forfeit any idea that you're ever better than anybody else. You, you just surrender it because you're saying that my best is not on myself. It's on Jesus Christ. It's built on him. And so we approach, we approach the issue of sexuality from that perspective of, of number one, people are going to be people. We're going to love them regardless of what they think about this stuff. Number two, God's going to be God. We're going to let him have house rules. But number three, the people who follow the house rules are never going to think that they're better people because the cross equalizes all of us. Now, what I, what I will say is I'd strongly encourage, this is why we're preaching about this, I'd strongly encourage you to follow the house rules because I think your life will be more fortunate because of it. I, I think it will go easier. Um, and, and I'm gonna talk about stuff experientially in my life, not judgmentally, not like, hey, I did this right all the time and so you're, you're, you're horrible if you don't do it. I'm saying like, hey, I messed up. Like I made my own mistakes and experientially I'm going, this makes sense. When you follow the house rules, it's better, right? All right, so here's the deal. We're going to talk about Song of Songs, and uh, there's two, two texts that shape our discussion today. One is a chorus. It's repeated three times in the book, and remember Song of Solomon, you've got bride and groom singing back to each other, uh, back and forth to each other, pronouncing their passion and love for one another. And then there's these three times where they stop, and she sings to her friends. And she sings because she wants them to understand something. That's the course of the book. It's really the heart of the book. But then you also have this statement at the end of the book, which we're going to look at. We're going to read them back to back, um, where, where they're going for a journey, and they go back to the place, uh, husband and wife, and, and they, they see the spot where they first met, and, and she becomes you know, overwhelmed with the joy of thinking about that. And now having reflected on their, their time together of being married, married, it's like she rededicates herself because she understands a perspective of marriage that was different, different than what she thought marriage would be at first, right? So we've got this chorus challenging the friends, and then we've got a renewal. Let's read them. Um, Song of Solomon 8, verse 4, she says to her friends, daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. And in verse six, upon seeing this place where they first met, she says, place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death. It's jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot sweep it away. If one were to give all of the wealth of one's house for love, it would be utterly scorned. You, you, you can't buy it. It's got to be natural. It's got to be produced. You can't purchase it. Let's pray. 
Uh, God, I pray as we turn our attention to really what is, in one sense, just beautiful poetry. But in another sense, it, it's so deep in, in the way that it touches to our lives, the way that it, it shows us how to navigate through something that can be incredibly painful and difficult if, if we get it wrong. So God, I pray that we do our best to get it right. Um, we, we follow after you and we understand that the way you've designed it is, is the way you designed it. Um, in your son's name we pray, amen. So, um, have you ever seen, have you ever seen a celebrity or a politician, the centerpiece of a news story because of something they've said? Have you ever seen that? I mean, I, I imagine it's pretty rare. It probably doesn't happen very much. Just pretend like we've got some people out there that say some stuff that, that's just taken and they make like big news stories. Out. Just, just kind of play along with me for a little bit. Um, maybe it's controversial. Maybe it's uncharacteristic. Maybe it's just really random or, or really weird. How, how do they usually respond? Like if they talk about the comment, what do they usually say? It's, it's usually something along the lines of, hey, you took that out of context. You took it out of context. That wasn't what I meant. In reality, you're going, actually, it's pretty plain. The context is right there. That's what you said. But um, have you ever had somebody take something you've said out of context? And you're going, that's not what I meant. You've got to understand, you've got to understand the dynamics of things that came before and things that came after. And it all makes sense when you appreciate it within the context. What Shulamite, what Shulamite is saying is she wants her friends to know that when it comes to romantic love, context is king. That where it takes place and what surrounds it is so incredibly important to the nature of love. That if you want love, to be as enjoyable, as pleasurable, as great as it can be, as God designed it to be, then the context of it all is extremely important. That you can't take love out of its context and ever expect love to be all that it was meant to be in the context. You, you, you can't do it. And again, this is not from judgmental. This is just from my own experience in life and from the rest of the scriptures going, you know what? I think Shulamite's right. I think she's got a point. I think she's had struggles in life. I think she's got to the point where she's married, and I think she's looking back to her friends who she loves deeply, and she goes, context is so incredibly, incredibly important here. And sexual passion and the context outside of marriage is something she repeatedly warns them against because it's got tremendous power, which we'll talk about, tremendous power to influence it in a way that it was never meant to be, that God designed it to happen at a right time, at a right place. Right, and now, again, I'm not talking, this is not to beat anybody down for anything that's happened. Previously, this is encouraging us for how to live in the future. Previously, prior, we've got the cross to cover our imperfection. I, I remind myself of that on a regular basis, that Christ's love offers forgiveness to move forward. And, and here's, this was not in first service, by the way. This is like a bonus, a freebie. First uh, John 1, 9 talks about being cleansed of the residue of sin in our life. Not just the penalty of sin, not the power of sin over and off sin in our life, but the residue of it, that we would be free of it, of kind of the way it tarnishes us. First John 1, 9, if you want to check it out. Um, a couple years ago, I was at a, a wedding for a couple that I, I officiated the wedding for, just a really sweet couple, Josh and Allie, um, and just great people, and it was a time of celebration. I was at the wedding reception. It was in a neat museum setting, and they set up tables in the museum. Um, and uh, I'm getting to the important part, which is the food, by the way. So I'm just building up to that. Um, and so we ate dinner, and we're sitting there, we're having a conversation. And I noticed that somebody across the table went and got a cupcake. 
okay? Now, instead of doing the big wedding cake, they had the small one and then a bunch of cupcakes. Now, I've been at enough weddings, like 150 of them, so I know, like, this is not traditional time for a cupcake. But it looks good. And I'm looking at it, and I'm like, so, like, what flavor is that? And he's like, red velvet with, like, cream cheese. I'm like, that, that's, that looks good. But I know it's not time for the cupcake, right? And then, like, two other people come back, and I'm like, all right, this is peer pressure. This is when people talk about peer pressure, they're talking about people eating cupcakes when they shouldn't, and you want a cupcake. That's peer pressure, all right? If you need a definition, that's it right there. And so I give in. Against my better judgment, I give in, and I go over, and I'm getting a cupcake, and it's in my hand at the cupcake table as the bride makes an announcement. Please wait (laughs) to have cupcakes until after we cut the wedding cake. And everybody looks back at the pastor <laughs> at the cupcake table with a cupcake. And I'm, now I've got to like, they're all looking at me like, what am I going to do? And, like, and so I just like put it down <laughs> and walk away. Why? Because the idea, the idea was to celebrate, celebrate something together in a context that everybody was on the same page. Everybody was excited about. I, I think what Shulamite is doing is saying, friends, look, I know this is a great great stroke, great, God built it to, to be something that you get really excited about, but look, there's a context to appreciate it in. That the friendship we talked about in week one of the Drifted series, you can go back, check it out online, the friendship and, and then the sacrifice ha- have a context of a promise where you say, I'm only going to be with you forever. And that represents our, our relationship with God where we enter a covenant into him through, through faith. And, and it's God going, look, then this, this covenant, this relationship that we have with him is reflected in this covenant that, that we have husband and wife. And, and within that marriage promise, you can celebrate it like crazy, but outside of it, the context is, is wrong. And she wants her love, this is Shulamite, her heart. She wants her readers to, and, and her listeners to know love in full, not in part. She wants them to know it as, as it's fully meant to be, to get, to get the best experience of it all. Like uh, our, our family went to Chicago this past summer for a conference, and uh, we're, we're there, and somebody heard that we were going to, con- the, to Chicago, and they were like, oh, you're going to Chicago. I gotta tell you where to go. I gotta tell you where to eat. I gotta tell you the things that you should do so that you can have the best experience in Chicago. Shulamite's going, I want you to have the best experience in love. So here's how, here's how it plays out. This is how it works. This is how God designed the house rules. So um, I, I do pre-marriage counseling a lot, and oftentimes I'll meet with a couple. And, and realistically, like just being real and not being judgmental, the, the nature of our society is most people live together before they're married. Um, and I think God's, God's rules challenge us to live differently than that. And so my, my, my goal within that uh, situation is to come along and, and say like, hey, I think what God offers to you is something better and something right and something more enjoyable for you in the long run. But the way that I kind of go about doing that is I I start with, these are communication principles that come straight from God's word that help you to have a better relationship. They put them into practice and they're like, wow, that works. And I'm like, these are financial principles from God's word that help you to have a better relationship and they put them into practice and they're like, it works. These are family dynamics and how you manage them, you put them into practice, it works. And then I'm going, hey guys, sexually speaking, these are principles from God's word. If you put them into practice, it works. 
One of the couples I met with, uh, Jessica and Josiah, just great, great people. She's a teacher. He's, he's, a, he's a city cop um, at, at another city. He's just, just an awesome guy. Um, and I had that, pretty much that exact conversation with them. Um, and so they made a choice to not like from me trying to like control their life, just saying, I think this is how God designed it. I think you should live this way. I think you should make that decision for yourself. Um, and they decide to, to, to withhold any activity until they're married. And, and it was like two months out. And, and uh, on their honeymoon, he texts me. He's like, I cannot thank you enough because of how special our time together has been as we went back and refocused the way that God wanted us to cannot thank you enough. See, I'm from the perspective that God's house rules on the issues of sexuality are not an outlier in how he designed life to operate best. I I don't think God's going, oh man, like, oh, oops, I I gave you wrong wrong instructions on sexuality, but everything else is good. I, I think it's, I think it's all good. And I think we should check it out and live that way. Um, and see, and here's why I think so. I'm gonna tell you why, why this makes sense to me. Um, because I think God created an elite experience, gave it elite pleasure, and put it in an exclusive context. He, he created an elite experience, gave it elite pleasure, and put it in an entirely exclusive and safe context. Right, so the elite experience, when God creates humanity, if you, wanna, if you wanna check out the scriptures, Genesis 1 through like Genesis 3, where, where God's creating humanity, and really, if you track one word, the word good, right, so that God will create the land and he'll say it's good, he'll create, um, he'll create the, the stars and say it's good, he'll create the animals and say it's good, and then, then he creates man and he reflects on it all, and he looks at man, he hasn't created a woman yet, and he looks at man and he goes, it's not good. It's really a shocking statement in the scriptures. It's good, it's good, it's good. It's not good, and the rest of the phrase goes, it's not good for man to be alone. Why? Because God's creating man in his image and his likeness. God, Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three in one. He goes, man is not anything in one, he's just one. And so he says, I'll create, I'll create female, and a man shall leave his father and mother and join with his wife, and the two shall become one. Because God wanted us to experience something that he himself experiences, oneness. This is, this is where every, every bit of my counseling towards husband and wives is all driven towards a similar concept to say, I need you to act and live and love as one, not two. Anything that pulls apart at oneness is detrimental. Anything that pushes you towards oneness is helpful. For you to be on the same page in love and life is the most powerful thing that you experience. And I think it's an unrivaled experience in human relationships to be one and to live as one. I think God did something absolutely incredible. Unless, if God calls you to singleness and you're chasing after him, I don't think you'll be dissatisfied. But I think if he calls you to be married, if you end up married, I think if you, if you don't experience oneness, you're missing out on something. And I would implore you and challenge you to run after that. I think it's incredible. What Song of Songs does is it comes along and God is not shy about the fact that this oneness idea is not shy about the fact that it's an elite pleasure. I mean, they're singing about enjoying parts of the body and things that they enjoy and experience together. And, and, and I think it's because that's how God designed it. I got a friend whose job it is to design hoods of Corvettes. So that's, that's his job, pretty cool job. And, and so he does all this testing and all this design. And you can imagine like when they get the Corvette out and they finally do this test drive, I don't think he's sitting there thinking, 
oh man, it's fast. I didn't want it to be fast. I just wanted it to look like it would be fast. I didn't want it to actually be fast. Here's the thing, they designed it to be fast. I think God designed your body to experience pleasure in the act of oneness. I think he did. I don't think it was a mistake. I think that's why they keep referring to it as an intoxicating moment that they're enjoying each other. So you got an elite experience with elite pleasure, but he puts it in a content that's exclusive. A promise of total faithfulness, leaving father and mother, joining wife. The, that phrase is highly covenantal in nature of, of leaving one covenant relationship and entering another where, where I think we find what we really, really long for in life, where because we're entirely committed to somebody else, we're incredibly vulnerable. To connect yourself, to become one with another person, now ties to, you them, to them in a way that, that is really quite vulnerable if you think about it. What happens to them, what they do, what they think, what they say, has dramatic effects on you. This is why marriage all of a sudden, it's like, whoa, this, this is more powerful than I thought it was, because you're tied to somebody else. And what God intends is for that incredibly vulnerable experience to also be an incredibly safe experience where you can love each other. I think, I think Bill Hybels uh, said it well when he said that what we really long for in love is to be fully known, to say, this is me. I'm not perfect. These are my strengths. These are my weaknesses. These are my failures. Can you still love me? And what we really long for romantically is for somebody to say, yes. Yes, I love you even though you're impatient, even though you're stubborn, even though you watch the game and you forget there's another human being speaking to you in the room, I love you anyway. I think that's what we deeply, deeply desire, which is why she then talks about the power of love in this sort of renewal. So I charge you daughters of Jer Jerusalem by the hinds, by the gazelles of the field, don't awaken love until it so desires. Keep it in the right context. And then she goes on to say, say, love is as strong as death. It's jealousy as unyielding as the grave. It's like a fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench. Rivers can't sweep it away. It can never be bought. It's incredibly powerful. You know this, by the way, from your own experience. Because love has made you do some of the dumbest things you've ever done. Love has made you do some of the most sacrificial things you've ever done. It's made you do some of the most amazing things. You know the power of love because you, you've experienced it in some way, shape, or form. And the power and potential that love has, God wants it to be expressed within the context of something that's safe and cherished. This is where Shulamite says, keep me like a seal over your heart. That word seal is this idea of, of a signet ring where they would use to, to stamp uh, an identity marker on, on something in life that, to, to place a seal on it so you knew it was from them, it was of them. It was very valuable to them. That's where they would wear it over their heart. And she says to Solomon, place me like a seal over your heart. Let me be incredibly cherished, incredibly valuable to her. Keep me close to you in life. Because she knows that power has the potential to lovingly care for her or power has the potential to hurt her. Power can be good or bad. Ask, ask, uh, ask Spider-Man, right? Because with, with great power comes great responsibility. Because you have the power to do something good or the power to do something bad. You can use love for something incredible, to, use, to influence somebody else's life in an incredibly powerful way, to amplify their self-worth like we talked about last week. Or you can use it to destroy their self-worth. 
It's a great power. And, and really, really what she's trying to get us to, to wrestle with is what do you want to do with that power? Somebody's very vulnerable when, you, when you're loved by them. What are you going to do with that? Often, often love will fail because we use that power as a means to our own leverage. We use it to get something we want. It's very easy to move closer to someone or to move away from someone in order to get what we want, where love becomes a means for leverage. It's a problem as old as humanity is. The second we had the capability to love is the very second we had the capability to use love as a leverage, to get what we want or, or to get somebody the way that we want. or Whatever it is, love has the ability to influence us dramatically. The truest love will always be when it's devoid of personal leverage. When it's devoid of personal leverage. When you're not thinking about how you're going to act to get somebody else to do what you want or to feel what you want. When you just love the way that God calls you to love, that is the truest love. If you want like something to think through and pray through this week, that idea that love will be its truest when it's devoid of personal leverage, just ask God to teach you in your life how that, how that plays out. Um, I, would guess, I would guess if it's anything like my journey in that, it'll be pretty eye-opening. Because so many things we do because of what, what we want at the end of the day. Here's, here's the thing. As we, as we look through this, um, I think we'd all agree that love has tremendous power. And so I want to give us kind of some, some principles of wisdom to help use that power as responsibly. So this is me speaking on behalf of Spider-Man, saying great power, great responsibility. Here's how you live wisely with that. Um, a, couple, a couple of things. We'll start with the single single mentality, which by the way, Eric is gonna preach next week. He's gonna cover that topic. I'm excited. He's already got the sermon done. I've already read it. It's gonna be good, so just saying, right? Um, and uh, so this is to the single. If, law, uh, if love is as strong as death, jealousy is unyielding as the grave, the implications of how it influences your life are pretty big. So this is my appeal to you. Uh, choose with your head, not just your heart. Your heart's been wrong before. It's led you astray. Scripture addresses that in Jeremiah. Your heart will deceive you at times to make you think you want something you don't really want. So, so if something is this important and influential in your life, choose with your head, not just your heart. Make a wise choice. Emotions are good things, but when it comes to major life decisions, they're not the best helpers. So think through it. This is, this is by the way, um, what I tell people who are single and they say, they'll ask like, what should I look for in somebody that I should marry uh, since this is an important decision? And I, I say this based on about a decade of working with young adults from 18 to 30. This is what I've said to them lots and lots of times. I say, I give you three things. Three things to look for. If you're going to choose with your head, not your heart. These are three things to look for. Number one, do you smile when you look at them? Do you smile when you look at them? Now, I didn't say, did your friend smile? Does everybody else think he's cute or everybody else thinks he's Do you smile when you look at her? Because the reality is physical attraction is just a part of it, right? So I, I'm not going to deny that reality. And by the way, these aren't in order or anything like that. They're just three things. Um, so do you smile when you look at them? Um, number two, are they best friend material? Like, is it somebody that you could see yourself just doing nothing with and still having a good time? Like, can they make nothing fun? Can you just enjoy being around them? Can you, can you go and, and have a conversation with them and enjoy? Are they best friend material? And number three, do, you, do they help you love Jesus more? I don't think there's anything better they can help you do. Do they help you love Jesus more? 
Like they just encourage that part of your life. Um, if you want a fourth one, I give you a fourth one because my own marriage, like I think my wife knocks this one out of the park. She's awesome at this. Um, it's that just somebody that's really adaptable to life. It's really easygoing. And they're flexible because God loves them and they know it. They can just, they, whatever the circumstances, they can just adjust to it and be okay. But that, that will save you tons of drama and arguments. It will. So those are the, those are the four. Smile, best for material. They help you love Jesus more and they can adapt. Because um, here's the thing. When you enter into that covenant, everyone else is dead to you romantically. Everyone else is dead. They're, they're the only one. They're the flower. Everyone else is a thorn. That's it. So, so, I mean, choose wisely. It's not the end of the world. If you get it wrong, Jesus is still Jesus, and he can help you through that. We just did a podcast talking with a, uh, an incredible woman. You've got you to gotta listen to this. If you're not a podcast person, just do me the favor of just listening to this one podcast. You can come in, sit next to me in the office, and I'll play it for you um, because I heard stories just incredible of God's love despite, despite romantic love just being trash and garbage. Um, and, and I'm just being real. Uh, she's an incredible woman, and God's done some awesome things through her, so check that out. Um, all right, so that's, that's to the single out there, to, and really to everybody at this one. Um, this, this one, I think, is huge. Physical intimacy is about the person, not the pleasure. It's about the person, not the pleasure. The pleasure is a part of it, but it's never more important than the person. And that's where Song of Songs is teaching all three aspects of love, the friendship, the sacrifice, and then the expression of it physically in, in the passion together. It's about the person more than the pleasure. If you flip this around, it will always be empty. It'll never be what it was meant to be. If it becomes for you about the pleasure more than the person, it'll never be what God wanted it to be and it'll never be as satisfying as it can be. Read an article sometime, I, I can't find the source for this, I wish I could. Um, but the article was, uh, it was an interview of a prostitute. And he asked the question, what is the phrase that you have heard the most? And the prostitute says, I've heard I love you the most. What a fascinating statement. That in this experience where they've, they've removed the, personal, the personal experience of it almost entirely and cheapened it to its highest degree, they still want the person to be there. Which, by the way, you can imagine how that's shaped and damaged that, that woman's life where she does not really grasp what love is at all. And my heart goes out to somebody like that. But look, it's not about the pleasure more than the person. It's pursuing the person. It's winning the heart, the whole person, and celebrating that together. Two, two notes on that. So the first one is this, is, is then if that's true, if it's about the person more than the pleasure, then you making your spouse whole life happy is more important than getting what you want sexually. Making your spouse whole life happy is more important than what, getting what you want sexually. That, that I, think, I think that's how God designed it, that you're supposed to enjoy the person, not just their body to be considerate of them, to, to not think I can be selfish all day long and then flip a switch when the kids are in bed and think this is gonna go the way. No, no, God wired you and wired her uh, to, to make it about the person because this is not just a physical experience, there's a spiritual dynamic at play where dode is this boiling over, this mingling of souls that comes because we pursue the person, not just the pleasure. Which, which by the way, I think what Solomon warns in Proverbs or encourages in Proverbs, what Shulamite and Song of Songs, what for me, for my own life, when you pursue the person more than the pleasure, it becomes more pleasurable. 
It's more enjoyable on a holistic level. So that's the first one. Um, it, it's whole life happy, not, not just bedroom happy. And the second one is this, is, is then if that's true, then them bugging you for physical intimacy is not necessarily a bad thing. It's not necessarily a bad thing for them to want to be with you. Um, after all, we'll say it this way, they're not allowed to bug anyone else. So the very fact that they're bugging you, they're pursuing you, pursuing your heart and pursuing that aspect of it is not a bad thing because you're the only person in the world they're allowed to bug. God has deemed everybody else off limits. He wants you to pursue each other. It's not a, they have to look away from everyone else in the world, but you they are allowed to look at. You do want them to pursue you, right? That's a part of it all. That mugging you is not necessarily a bad thing. Understand this is in the context I'm speaking to 99% of the marriages, not, not the 1% that really need individual conversations. But, but man, pursuing each other is a good thing. Because physical intimacy is about the person, not the pleasure, if we, if we redirect it towards another person, it will always have a negative effect on the relationship at hand. If it's about the person, not the pleasure, and we redirect it towards another person, it will always have a negative effect on this, on this relationship. Um, I, I think Proverbs says it this way, that uh, this is my paraphrase, lust is a drain to love. Lust is a drain to love. Uh, Proverbs, there's two Proverbs, Proverbs 9 and Proverbs 5 that, that addresses the clear. Proverbs 9, what Solomon does is he takes his boys up to a rooftop and says, boys, watch that prostitute try to lure people into her house. And I want you to see something, that they're enjoying something that's killing them, that's stealing life from them. Literally, the phrase is they're enjoying a banquet in the grave. So there's a party in the tomb going on. So be careful, boys. Proverbs 5, he speaks intentionally using euphemisms and says, don't let your sexuality spill out, pour out in the streets. Let it be shared with your own spouse. Let it be something that's enjoyed together because it will not just pour you out, you will pour out an emptiness to the relationship as well. I met a guy once at the restaurant I worked at. He was a new hire, a new employee, and I had some responsibility to train him, and I was making small talk. And I was like, so where did you, like, where did you work beforehand? And he goes, oh, I worked at Jiffy Lube, but I got fired. And whenever somebody gets fired, you're always a little bit interested in why. And I was like, well, all right, I'll ask. So I was like, well, why'd you get fired? And he goes, I forgot to put the drain plug back into the oil. And I was like, oh. I'm like, so they didn't make it very far. He's like, no, they, they made it a little bit down the road. And uh, the car died, and my job did too. <laughs> like, at least you got a sense of humor about it. Guys, if you take the drain pan, you take the, the, the plug there, and you unthread it, just a little bit, just so like a drip comes out, it begins to drain life from the car. And sooner or later, it stops working. That's what lust does to a marriage. It just drains it. It drains the life, it drains the energy, it drains the creativity, it drains the spontaneity, it, it drains the, the joy. It just drains it. Every single person I've ever counseled in a marriage, every single person where lust was a component, every time it drained the life from the relationship as well. Batting a thousand. Batting a thousand every single time because it's drained, it's drained love. I dare you, I dare you to cut it out I just dare you to take it, 
and say, God, I need your help, but I don't want this to be a part. I, I don't want pornography. I don't want lust to be a part of my relationship anymore. I dare you to take it out and watch what happens when you follow house rules and God restores, restores your love for each other and a love that doesn't deplete, but a love that fulfills. You, you know why? You know why this is so powerful? I, I want you to understand not just what God said. I want you to understand why. So he, here's the why. Because lust is a substitute for intimacy. It's a shortcut. It's a substitute. It, it, it's, it's, look, the, it's saying I care about the pleasure, not the person. And if I can't get the pleasure from this person, I'll get it somewhere else. It's a substitute. And it drains you because it captures your heart into a different story. We're dissatisfied with the narrative that we live in. And so I'll create another narrative that satisfies me, that excites me, that entices me. This is why you never fantasize of a reality that's worse than your actual reality. You're creating a scenario that's better because you're dissatisfied with those. Instead of letting God work and fix and resolve this one, we're going, I'll just make up my own over here. And, and, and so what happens is, this is the problem. You can't go to a world that's perfect and flawless because you've made it that way and come back to reality without dissatisfaction overflowing from that one. You can't come back from what you deem to be perfect and unbroken and then come back to broken and expect to be happy with it. Dissatisfaction comes along for the ride back from reality, fantasy into reality. And followers of Christ are, are, were, were called by God to love him and to be loved by him so passionately and so consistently that we're, we're satisfied within a broken reality. Say, God, I'm gonna keep serving after you. I'm gonna keep loving at you. I'm gonna keep following your spirit to make this better. Because you know what you'll find? The reality on the other side of brokenness. When you let God develop a oneness where it lacked is so much better than what you could have ever dreamed of creating over here in, in fantasy. When you wait for marriage, when you invest in marriage, you will find that God re will reward it and honor it far better than you could have ever dreamed up. Far, far better. You know why? Because his love is the source of all the love that you long for in life. And what Shulamite is really getting at with her friends, what, what she's really trying to convey is that the source of love needs to be the center of love. The source of it all. God himself should be the center of it in your life, the center in, in your marriage. In fact, in the Hebrew, when she says, like a mighty flame, she actually really says, there's a little, there's a little, a little phrase in there that alludes to something greater. She says, like the mighty flame of the Lord. Let his love, let his love be what's at the center of it all. In Colossians, they're talking about Jesus, how incredible Jesus was, that he existed before the world began, that, that he will exist afterwards, he'll rule over everything. And then there's a statement that in Christ, all things hold together. In other words, within Jesus himself, there's something centrifugal, something that draws things to together. There's never been a Christ-centered church that has split. There's never been a Christ-centered marriage that has ended. Because if it's truly in Christ, people are gonna love people are going to follow after him and they're going to have their needs and their wants satisfied in Jesus Christ. It, 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 it's intrinsic that within Jesus, things pull closer together, not further uh, apart. And, and so then what we look at is that if any of this from the whole book of Song of Songs sounds good, 
if any of the pleasure, if any of the friendship, if any of the safety of the covenant, the vulnerability promised by care and compassion, just if any of it sounds good, it's all anticipating a relationship with him that waits to come to reality the moment that we leave this earth. And the source of it can become the center of it right now. When you get it down, when you live that way, when you understand that Jesus Christ is the source of what you really long for romantically, what you really long for in a friendship, what you really long for sacrifice, you know what you find? That you no longer have to use love as leverage. Love doesn't have to be used as leverage anymore because I'm already satisfied. I've already had a God who loved me so incredibly that I no longer have to twist my reality and use love as a tool. Love doesn't have to be that way. Love can be free. The spring pours into me and I pour out freely to the people around me. Love doesn't have to be used as a leverage. You know why? Romans 8 says God works together all things for the good of those who love him. God leverages life for those he loves. He leverages everything for your good. His love compels him to take the bad in life and to turn it to shape you in a positive way for you to find their ultimate fulfillment in him. God leverages things for you out of love. So we don't have to leverage anything else to feel loved and to get what we want. It's all in Christ. End with a story. A couple years ago, I, I started doing counseling for a couple. I love them to death. They're, they're, we don't get to see each other very often, but they're one of those couples where you sit down with them, and it's like you've, been, you've not been around them for five years, but you're talking like you did yesterday. And so this, this couple, um, it's funny. When, when I first met her, she goes, I'm 50% Irish, 50% Italian, and I'm 100% of both. I was like, I don't know what that means. I found out shortly. It means she's got a lot of spunk and whatever she thinks about, she says. And I have come to greatly appreciate people like that because there's never any games. You, you always know what they're thinking, when they're thinking it. And it's really nice to do relationships that way. Well, I'm doing counseling with them where they both came from very toxic. He came from a, 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 a marriage of unfaithfulness. She came from a marriage of, uh, where he died from drug overdose. And, and they meet each other, and it's just this imperfect mess of codependency. And, and I'll, I'll be in the relationship, but not really in the relationship. And they're struggling with their own demons. They're working through their own stuff. And, and we, we start going. We start applying biblical principles and it starts getting better, it starts getting better. And he goes, that's nice, but I don't want to get married because I like to feel safe and have one foot out the door. That's not his words, that's a paraphrase. I like to feel safe and have one foot out the door. And so for the next year, we met and we talked about how safety is not a foot out the door. Safety is two hearts in the door going, we're gonna do this the way Jesus wants us to. So they've been married for five years and I was like, I wanna test this. I wanna see how they've done uh, so I text him a dangerous question. And I say, are you glad you got married? I don't know what the answer's gonna be. And he sends back, he's like, man, it's been tough. Every day is a challenge, but it's been incredible. And God has stretched me and grown me. He, he's taken through, through a process where she's realized an addiction in her life and we've grown to the point where I wanted to leave her, but, but I didn't leave her and now she's actually doing addiction counseling to help others be free and we just love each other and love marriage. House rules let you experience the blessings and the benefits of the way God has designed it to offer. The more that you're one, the more that you pursue each other, the better this gets. It takes two people. 
It takes two people willing to let go of their stubbornness and say, I want to see what's on the other side of mess. And I'm going to love to get there, and it's going to be awesome if you do. Let's pray. God, you're incredible. I pray you give us new energy. I pray instead of just becoming content with okay, we chase after you and we own your love and through your love and by your love, we get to great. I want us to be a church, Lord, filled with husbands and wives who practice your house rules and enjoy the benefits and the fruits and the blessings of it. I know it's gonna be difficult. I pray your spirit gives clear paths to get there. I pray he gives just a calmness to resolve issues. I pray he heals hearts that are hurting. He, he heals scars so that they themselves become the foundation for some incredible things that you want to do. And God, I ask this in your son's name. Amen.